This is Radio Parallax, a slightly different perspective from a slightly different view, with topics that include matters in science, technology, history, politics, current events, and whatever we damn well please. And now the host of Radio Parallax, Douglas Everett. Welcome to the program, which is, I guess, number three on the downward countdown toward Election Day. We have this week, the week after, and the week after that to talk about what we're going to talk about in this election season because, you know, we've been talking about COVID-19 for the past, I don't know how many programs, but really what we're talking about is COVID-19 in an election year with Donald Trump pretending that this is all just going to go away and playing that off in his effort to get reelected. Yes, there's a pandemic going on, but the pandemic in most places just isn't quite the same pandemic we're having here in the United States of America. On next week's program, or the week after that, we hope to bring you someone who's been involved with the production of a new Alex Gibney documentary titled Totally Under Control. We did reach out to Mr. Gibney himself. We were fortunate enough to have him on this program 15 years ago in the wake of Enron, the smartest guys in the room. Uh, His publicist, regrets to inform us that he's probably not going to be able to uh, find time for us between now and Election Day, which is which is okay by me. I'd rather he's speaking to CNN and the BBC than Radio Parallax, frankly. But he has two other fellow directors that are involved in, in that production, and we hope to bring one of those two on to speak with us either next week or the week after. We also plan to bring back Stephen J. Harper, whose excellent timelines on the BillMoyer.com website Well, major resources for the nation. Our particular website, trumppandemic.net, is is still a work in progress. We may have been a little premature in forward promoting it on last week's show, but, you know, I think by tomorrow, it's going to be looking pretty good. We have a lot of data on there, and what I'd like to think is the definitive timeline among all the timelines of how this has all gone down. Chris, you can be the judge of that. But over the next two weeks, we plan to make a lot of additions to that particular website. I guess our dream is that, hey, maybe there's that undecided voter out in Wisconsin or Georgia or particularly Florida who's looking for some data to make up his mind and, you know, they'll, they'll find their way to our site and say, oh, well, now that you put it that way, yeah, I know, that's a little silly on the one hand. But on the other hand, you know, in this era we live in where people do find things on the Internet, who the heck knows? We also plan later on today's program, to speak with someone who's out in the trenches. I've been talking to a lot of friends in the medical field about what it's like out there. They, uh, they have some strong opinions about how this has gone down and how it should not have gone down as it has gone down. Most of them have declined to speak into a microphone, so to speak, about all of this. But uh, one brave guy I've known since medical school, he perhaps one of the bravest doctors I know, has agreed to come on and speak with us, which we will do later on this first segment or the second. I'm not sure at this point. I also want to report with some regret that someone we were hoping to come on this program will, in fact, not do so. That was going to be someone out there involved with the U.S. Postal Service. The reason we will not have that guest join us on Radio Parallax is, well, paranoia. Well, that isn't exactly the right word, I suppose. The term paranoia tends to imply an unreasonable fear. But in this case, citing an example of someone in the U.S. Postal Service that spoke to a member of the media and spoke anonymously, the fact that the USPS traced down who the person was and fired him has put the fear of God into our perspective 
interviewee. But we do have some information from an intermediary who has confirmed uh, the following facts. The post office is very much aware that what's going on right now is political. The reason that these automated uh, mail sorting machines have been taken offline is to slow the mail down. And the reason they want to slow the mail down is, quite frankly, so the Democratic votes are not counted. If you've been watching the media, you've seen that uh, voter turnouts in states that are allowing people to show up and cast their ballots are off the charts, which is, which is encouraging. There appears to be something of a blue tidal wave taking place across the country as people are stepping forward to express their dissatisfaction with what's going on. But uh, what concerns me, and I think concerns people in the Postal Service, is that even though they've been caught taking off these high-speed machines uh, without proper justification, there seems to be nobody stepping forward to get them back online. We think you can pretty much count on a lot of chicanery on Election Day related to mail-in ballots. I don't think we're going out on a limb on that one. But something that I had not realized was complicating life for postal workers is the fact that Amazon is experiencing a huge surge in deliveries right now, and Amazon has a contract with the Postal Service to deliver things. So our postal workers, in addition to, you know, moving ballots around along with campaign materials and first-class mail, are are stuck delivering like 40-pound bags of dog food, which has been ordered through Amazon. And apparently uh, a contract that Amazon had with United Parcel Service was not renewed recently, putting an even bigger burden on the United States Postal Service. And of course, people think, isn't it great? I'll just go to Amazon Pantry and order my groceries. You know, big big surge in that during the COVID pandemic here in America. But of course, you know, if if the postal worker is delivering your groceries, well, he may have a harder time getting the ballots where they're supposed to go. Anyway... Sometime in the next two programs, we may get some further feedback from our source, buried in the USPS. Uh, I hope so, because that is frankly going to be a, uh, you know, a front line of this electoral battle. And speaking of mail-in ballots, it, it is rather shocking to see the following headline. This is coming out of the Associated Press. State GOP, referring to California admits to owning unofficial ballot drop boxes. Dateline Los Angeles, California's Republican Party, on Monday, that would be the 12th, acknowledged owning unofficial ballot drop boxes that state election officials said are illegal. After receiving reports about the drop boxes in three counties, California's Secretary of State issued a memo telling county registrars these boxes were illegal and that ballots must be mailed or brought to official voting locations. In short, providing unauthorized, non-official vote-by-mail ballot drop boxes is prohibited by state law, the memo said. But on that same day, GOP spokesperson Hector Barajas said the party owns the boxes and has no plans to remove them. He would not say how many exist or where they're located. Barajas said the state's law governing so-called ballot harvesting allows organizations to collect and return groups of ballots and the collection boxes provided by private organizations to help people vote are no different. Now, by way of clarification, the practice of ballot harvesting involves people helping to turn in ballots for other voters. It is allowed in California under certain rules, and Democrats have been known to offer to deliver ballots for individuals who request it. That was according to Sherry Yang Wanakot, spokesperson for the state's Democratic Party. The party is concerned about the GOP using boxes that seem to pose as official collection sites. 
And there doesn't seem to be too much doubt about this being illegal. You have to designate who you're going to have, uh, you know, turn in your ballot for you. I mean, they have to be specifically designated, not just like a box that the Republican Party stuck out on a corner somewhere. I'm finding it especially ironic that Trump and the GOP have been spending the last few months attacking the integrity of mail ballots, and then they pull a stunt like this. And no, uh, there's no news yet that the Secretary of State's office is sending people out to Republican headquarters to find those who are responsible for this illegal action and arresting them, cuffing them, perp-walking them. I don't know why that's not happening. CNN is reporting that the California Republican Party installed dozens of unauthorized ballot drop boxes in at least four Southern California counties where there are competitive house races this year. I just love this reporting on CNN. Republicans claimed they merely wanted to use their makeshift drop boxes to collect people's ballots and return them to election officials. And I have no doubt that they would have collected those ballots and returned them to election officials. I just am not sure that they would have included all of the ballots that were in the boxes when they turned them over to the officials. Gavin Newsom wasn't shy about commenting on this. He said the incident proved Republicans would lie, cheat, and threaten our democracy all for the sake of gaining power. Well, that seems a little harsh. Not. Anyway, we'll stay on this, uh, this story over the next week, as I think everybody should, especially Alex Padilla, who is California's Secretary of State and the person responsible for overseeing the election. But keep in mind, this is deeply blue California where this is going on. Can you imagine what's going on in those purple and red states? Well, hold on. We'll tell you. Let's just take a look at Texas, which rather surprisingly appears to actually be in play. Trump's lead over Biden is quite narrow in Texas, and some think the unthinkable might be possible. Texas might flip blue. To which I would add, I'll believe that when I see it, but nice to be hopeful. Robert Reich commented about what's going on in Texas, which is... Sad to note that uh, last night, a federal appeals court, which is comprised of three Trump judges, upheld Texas Governor Greg Abbott's proclamation limiting counties in the state of Texas to one ballot drop-off location in the the process overturning a lower court's ruling, which means that, say, the 2.4 million voters in Harris County, which spans nearly 2,000 square miles and I believe includes Houston, will have one single location at which to drop off their ballot. Now, I know Texas has one county somewhere out west that's got 176 inhabitants. You know, I think one drop box for them ought to be okay. Abbott claimed that the proclamation he made was necessary to prevent voter fraud, but has not provided a single piece of evidence, said Robert Reich, that multiple ballot drop-offs would create opportunities for fraud. 82-year-old Ralph Edelbach sued the state over the order. He said that providing just one drop-off location will force him to spend nearly an hour and a half round trip to simply deliver his ballot. Asked Robert Reich, now think of all the voters who are disabled, who can't afford to take time off work, to drive hours to drop off their ballots, or who don't have access to transportation that will take them that far. This is deliberate voter suppression, plain and simple. It's absurd that one party has made suppressing the vote a key pillar of their ideology. But said Reich, don't get disheartened about the Republicans' anti-democratic tactics. If your vote didn't matter, they wouldn't be trying so hard to suppress it. And rather astoundingly, in Washington, D.C., it appears that the aid package, which Congress and the executive branch are trying to hammer out to help Americans in the wake of COVID, looks stalled. And it appears at the moment there will be no relief coming between now and Election Day. Now, this is going to create a hardship and a lot of ill will among the populace. And that can't possibly be helpful to the incumbent. And we imagine they're aware of that in the White House. 
So what can explain that? Well, what we think explains that is the fact that they're putting all their eggs in one basket, and that basket is named Judge Amy Coney Barrett. The GOP is trying to ramrod her approval for the Supreme Court of the United States through the Senate, which is just, you know, it's just, it's such a, it's such a, just a dirty episode of American politics that, uh, that Mitch McConnell told Barack Obama that uh, Merrick Garland was not going to get a chance to be approved for the Supreme Court, turning that, that replacement of Anton Scalia over to Donald Trump. That's how we got Neil Gorsuch instead of Merrick Garland. Let the people decide was sort of the mantra of the Republicans under McConnell back then. But, you know, right now they are, well, they're abandoning the efforts to get that relief package through Congress and focusing on getting this woman on the Supreme Court. Obviously, they're counting on the fact that if there is a challenge to the election, which I think is pretty much universally uh, acknowledged as something that's going to happen, barring a landslide for Biden, that Trump is hoping that with a 6-3 majority on the Supreme Court, they will just certify him as the winner. As happened back in 2000, where by a 5-4 to four vote, the Supreme Court along party lines basically stopped the recount in Florida and anointed George W. Bush as president, in spite of the fact that had a vote count actually been conducted, it's pretty clear in my mind anyway that Al Gore was going to be the next president. Of course, you can see one reason that, uh, that uh, Trump likes uh, Amy Comey Barrett in the exchange between her and Democratic Senator Patrick Leahy, referencing Trump's claim that he was, had an absolute right to pardon himself, Leahy first asked Barrett if she believed that no American's above the law. I agree, she said, no one is above the law. Then Leahy asked, does the president have an absolute right to pardon himself for a crime? I mean, we heard this question after President Nixon's impeachment. Here's how Barrett responded. Senator Leahy, so far as I know, that question has never been litigated. That question has never arisen. That question may or may not arise. It's one that calls for a legal analysis of what the scope of the pardon power is. So because it would be opining on an open question when I haven't gone through the judicial process to decide it, it's not one on which I can offer a view. By the way, she also refuses to offer a view on whether global warming is actually taking place. And writing in the Washington Post about this debacle... Jennifer Rubin pointed out that Barrett's refusal to recuse herself on the election should disqualify her. Said Rubin, Republicans are rushing through Judge Amy Comey Barrett's confirmation as millions of voters cast their ballots. The Republican senators who will confirm her have made clear, as President Trump has, that they have to get her in there. Republicans have said, we may need the Ninth Justice to decide the election. Trump, of course, has refused to commit to respecting the outcome of the election, and Republicans speak about accepting the court's decision, not the vote count, as if they plan to with, as if they plan to withhold recognition of the newly elected president unless and until the Supreme Court approves. They're saying that there's no way to stop her confirmation, that the Republicans have the votes. There was some talk about how they might be able to proceed when it turned out the three senators came down with COVID, but uh, no, things are going forward. And, you know, we have so much to say about COVID in today's program. But as we said at the top of this show, the COVID pandemic and election 2020 are completely related to one another. And we're not the only ones to think so, since we spoke to you last time on this program, dear listener, in an unprecedented move, the New England Journal of Medicine published an editorial written by the editors which condemned the Trump administration for its response to the COVID-19 pandemic and calling for the current leadership in the United States to be voted out of office. This comes in the wake of Scientific American for the first time in its history, 
coming forward to endorse Joe Biden over Donald Trump. And then there's the Journal of the American Medical Association, which two days ago published a study showing that there's 225,000 excess deaths in the U.S. using census data and CDC data just from March to July. Deaths linked to COVID, per their estimation, accounted for two-thirds of that total, which puts the number at 151,000 excess deaths just on March, April, May, June, July versus last year. They also published a study comparing U.S. death rates to other advanced nations at 60.3 deaths per 100,000 compared to 24.6 in neighboring Canada. The U.S. can be said to have had 117,000 more deaths than expected. Well, that's at minimum. Dr. Ezekiel Emanuel, chairman of the Department of Medical Ethics and Health Policy at University of Pennsylvania, said that's tens of thousands of Americans who have unnecessarily died. And why is that, dear listener? Well, politics. On the same day that that report came out, campaign surrogate Rudy Giuliani told a crowd in Philadelphia, people don't die of this disease anymore. Meanwhile, over in the UK, the Lancet, distinguished journal, confirmed the first U.S. case of a patient getting COVID twice. In this case, the 25-year-old Nevada man's subsequent infection was more severe than his first. And on that same day, which was Columbus Day, oh, I guess, I guess that's, that's politically incorrect. Let's call it the holiday traditionally referred to as Columbus Day. Trump held a campaign rally in Florida where he continues to claim that the pandemic is nearly over. Said Trump, under my leadership, we're delivering a safe vaccine and a rapid recovery like no one can even believe. If you look at our upward path, no country in the world has recovered the way we have recovered. (laughs) Mr. Wheeler points out this point. Well, that is true, since pretty much everybody else has done better. And... On the 10th of October, the world recorded its highest number of daily COVID-19 cases since the pandemic began. That's being fueled by a second wave taking place in Europe. India, by the way, has now joined the U.S. as, you know, one of two nations with over 7 million cases. We're now at 8. We've now gone over 8 million with 220,000 deaths, at least. Anyway, to make a long story short, pandemic is, is very much not over. It's not nearly over. And vaccines are not going to save us. As far as I can see, the only thing I can see that's going to make things more normal in the U.S. and make us, say, comparable to other advanced nations would be a change in leadership. A change to leadership that doesn't downplay masks, doesn't downplay social distancing, that actually thinks testing as many people as possible is a good thing, which also believes that you should then contact trace people and isolate as needed. Basic basic epidemiology, which for political reasons has not been done here in the U.S. of A. Anyway, got more stats I could cite, but I'm going to take a break from that. We would refer you to trumppandemic.net. You can click on our timeline, which I just read from. Uh, there's a lot more than that on there, and I, and I hope you will check it out, dear listener. And after you do, pass along to some other people. In the few minutes we have left in this segment, I think we should talk about Alex Gibney. And his upcoming documentary, Totally Under Control. It's going to be available on uh, video on demand starting, well, if I'm reading this right, I guess yesterday. Notes the LA Times. And then to Hulu viewers on October 20th. It's also apparently going to make the rounds in in drive-in theaters across the country, but I don't think that's going to reach that many sets of eyes. The article in the Times by Amy Kaufman uh, describes how on 2 a.m. on the morning that Trump had tweeted that he was positive for COVID. Uh, they had to have a, a meeting of the of, of Alex Gibney and his fellow directors, Suzanne Hillinger and 
Ophelia Harut Yunyan. The team decided to proceed with their launch of a trailer, and 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 we should and you should check out the trailer. We're going to try and get it up on our website in the next day or two. The Times reported that they didn't make any changes in the movie. They decided just to add an end card to it, clarifying that one day after they'd finalized it for release, Trump tested positive. Said Gibney, it seemed like a perfectly sardonic poetry that harmonized with what we were saying in the film. The Times note that Gibney is no stranger to tales of manipulation. After all, he produced Going Clear, Scientology, and the Prison of Belief, or Corruption, because he did do Enron, the smartest guys in the room, or Dishonesty. He produced The Inventor, Out for Blood in Silicon Valley, which I did not see, but Mr. Miller, we need to check that one out. He decided to make a coronavirus film in April, saying the idea was born out of his anger at how badly the pandemic seemed to be bungled in the United States. He was feeling helpless and wanted to channel that emotion into an investigation, one that could be seen by Americans before the presidential election. But to complete the documentary in such a short time, Gibney knew he would need help, so he reached out to Hillinger, an Emmy winner who'd worked on the New York Times docuseries The Weekly, and Harut Yunyan, who had recently produced his Venice Film Festival selection Crazy Not Insane, which HBO will evidently release next week. When it came to doing interviews, the directors divided and conquered. Because of the pandemic, the filmmakers had to come up with various options for safely capturing footage. Some subjects were sent a camera wig that allowed them to communicate with the team over Zoom from the instant they retrieved it off their doorstep. Those who were comfortable meeting in person were protected from the directors with the aid of a shower curtain that had a hole cut in it. And of course, in South Korea, the team was able to hire a 10-person crew because the infection rates had fallen so greatly there. Anyway, the Times published a little interview with all three filmmakers, which I think I will excerpt from. Gibney was asked, why did you feel it was vital for this film to be released before the November election? To which he replied, you want to have some way of holding officials to account and some information with which to do that. So here was a report card on the handling of the pandemic that people could reflect on prior to casting their vote. This was a film that was really about competence, number one. None of us wanted this to be seen as political in terms of a Democrat versus Republican. Also, in my own experience, I felt like it was a crime film. It was a crime of negligence and a crime of fraud. And those crimes, prosecuted in the court of public opinion, have a massive death toll. Asked, did anyone express concern about the rapid production timeline? Ghibli replied, there was some pushback from funders like, why don't you just wait, relax? Take it over the course of time when history will carefully reveal itself. You can tell a more textured version of this story. Gibney said, I was like, no, I want to tell this story now when it matters, when you can look at what happened early on and render some kind of judgment. That should go into the calculus about how you cast your vote. Asked if you had been able to interview President Trump, would you have taken that opportunity? Gibney said, you always want it. And what you want is people to walk through events step by step and tell their story. You're always interested. And frankly, I encourage people to try and tell their stories the way they want to tell them. Once you get in the cutting room, you check the facts and see whether they're lying to you or how often, and whether there's any moment when they're not lying to you. He was asked, isn't that too late? Gibney said, no, it's never too late. Once you're in the cutting room, you can always find a way to put remarks in context so people know they're lying to you. It's hard to know in the moment if people are lying to you. You have to check. Co-director Hillinger was asked, some people told you they'd sit for interviews, but only after the election, to which she said, a lot of the conversations I had were, we're not telling a political story, we're just telling the facts. And you have first-hand knowledge of the facts, and we want you to share that with us. What did you bear witness to? Just give us your testimony, and that's it. 
And that was a really scary ask for a lot of people who are either career politicians or career public health folk who get government funding. Hillinger added another part of the interview. I had sources close to the CDC who were telling me, like, people aren't going to return your calls because they believe their phones are being tapped. They aren't going to respond to your emails because they believe their emails are being watched. To which she added, it was scary. Asked by the Times, how did you push back? Did you urge them to be on the right side of history? Gibney said, we tried to make that claim to Michael Caputo when he got on the phone with us representing Health and Human Services. He was, as you know from this program, the Assistant Secretary of Public Affairs put in there, in there to um, control the narrative. Gibney said, you got to tell the story. you got to tell the story so the voters can decide. But he said, it won't surprise you to learn that political figures don't see it that way. They're not thinking about history. They're just thinking about the political utility of messaging in the moment because all they want to do is win. They're not thinking about an obligation they have to voters to tell the truth so the voters can decide. That's not how the game works, unfortunately. To which Director Harold Union added, I was in touch with a Republican governor for three months. I was playing ball with them. They agreed to the interview and at the last minute pulled out. Again, it comes back to, will they give me PPE after seeing this interview? Will they give me swabs? Because these states are still heavily relying on the federal government for materials and for tests, etc. So when you have someone at the top who in a way can decide they're going to hurt someone for their personal reasons, obviously that's very dangerous and you can't play with that. Anyway, we do envy people that have pictures to go with voice. Uh, I'm sure Alex Gibney, you know, based on his prior work, We'll have put together one hell of a documentary here with Totally Under Control. And by God, we hope that one of his co-directors will talk to us on this program either next week or the week after. You know, fingers crossed. Let us take a short break. You're listening to Radio Parallax. I'm Douglas Shepard. We got lots more to talk about. So stick around, eh? Harry Truman was our president A Coke and burger cost you 30 cents I was still in love with Mavis Brown On the night Hank Williams came to town I Love Lucy debuted on TV That was one big event we didn't see Cause no one stayed at home for miles around It was the night Hank Williams came to town 